Welcome to the Pragmatic Lead Podcast. Your hosts are Alex Pachuk and John Massey. We have conversations with folks throughout the tech industry to get real-world perspective on how people make things happen for their careers and businesses. Check out pragmatically.com for more content just like this. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Pragmatic Lead. Today, we're talking about leading AI transformations, and our guest is Tom Goldenberg. Hello, Tom. Hi, John. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Hello. Very good. So, Tom, we've known each other a little bit. We met in uh, in a tech meetup. Oh, man. Years ago. Yeah. A long time ago. Yeah, I think at, uh, at Priceline, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And, uh, Tom, we recently caught up, and you've been spending a lot of time in AI. Mm-hmm. And um, you've been playing a team lead role on uh, Quantum Black currently. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you could, why don't you tell us, uh, tell us a bit about yourself and what you've been up to? Sure. So, you know, currently I, I work as a junior principal as part of Quantum Black. Just a little bit about what Quantum Black, uh, who we are, what we do. Using AI, advanced analytics across, you know, a number of different industries, including, you know, healthcare. Formula One racing, which is where I actually got started uh, more than 10 years ago, you know, all types of different operations, marketing, financial services, et cetera. And Quantum Black is a a McKinsey company. So the the company was, it was acquired by McKinsey about five years ago. And so we've been integrated in the broader McKinsey ecosystem. McKinsey, you know, is management consulting, basically top level strategy operations, a whole host of things, you know, tens of thousands of employees that we just work with, you know, the top level of organizations to improve their performance. So how do I fit into that? I, you know, serve this role as kind of a translator. I work with teams as a, as a team lead on the technical side to help them, you know, help an organization basically unlock value with, with AI. And I've been here for about a year and a half, have been doing consulting for two and a half years. I think when we met at the time, I was just really getting into the tech industry as a as an engineer. And so at the time I was, you know, going to lots of meetups and starting to present and learning about different, you know, technology frameworks, et, et cetera. So it's been a very interesting journey. So Tom, AI is a pretty broad term and yeah. probably means different things to different people. Could you describe like in your context and working in with artificial intelligence, what does it mean to you? I agree. It's, it's a term that's thrown around a lot. Um, the way I think of AI and how we kind of define it is it's essentially, you know, machines mimicking human cognitive functions. So, I mean, think of all the things that we do on a physical or mental level, how can we kind of replicate some of these processes? So, we think of like image classification of, you know, you know, we're able to recognize things. And, and so we can train computers to recognize objects and detect things. So that's an example of vision, any type of cognitive analysis that we do of, of you know, drawing insights, speech, et cetera. And, you know, when we think about artificial intelligence, like I said, it's a broad term within that you have different kind of different techniques that are used, such as machine learning deep learning, et cetera. But artificial intelligence is kind of the blanket term that we use to describe those things. Um, I'm sure a lot of companies are trying to get on this AI bandwagon. It's cool. Uh, You know, it's new. It's innovative. So when you start working with a company like Formula One, I'm sure it's a bigger company or smaller companies. How do you explain to them or how do you start this conversation about AI to define what AI means in that specific context? Is there a general rule or is it just really case by case, company by company? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there are, I guess the answer would be it's a little bit of both, right? There are some general principles, but there's also, um, there has to be customization for, for each organization. If I think about kind of general principles, one is understanding, 
you know, we call it the art of the possible. You know, what 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 is it that AI can do? Like the potential, you know, what are some of the limitations of it? And how is it being used today? I think that's kind of a, a key thing as well. Like how are, you know, competitors in the space as well as maybe potential future competitors using this as a competitive advantage? And, you know, I think it really starts with the top level of an organization seeing that there is value and seeing that, you know, along with the, you know, five-year business strategy, this is an imperative, right? Like there's a lot of value to be unlocked and it's a key competitive driver. So I think that's kind of one approach is, is getting alignment within the top level of an organization that this is important for our organization in the next five to 10 years. From there, then you get into more of the custom customization you mentioned for each organization within their particular industry, given their own unique mission and vision and, and history, what does that look like, right? Because you're not starting with a, a blank slate. You know, organizations have done analytics. They work with data. That's not, you're not doing this from scratch. But how do you then take those capabilities and build you know, AI capabilities and actually unlock value from it. That's where you have to kind of get into the weeds of their organization and their industry as well. Okay. And before we get into the topic of our conversation transformation, are there any prerequisites for these companies before they get into AI or start thinking about AI or just to get the value out of this um, system? Any specific data they have, any structure, any kind of anything? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I, it's interesting you mentioned the data. There's been an often cited research that, you know, part of any data science insight is about 80% is the engineering and the data that goes into it. And my experience is, is playing that data engineering role. And I've seen firsthand that a lot of attention gets paid to attracting talented data scientists, right? It, we all know that it, it, you know, if you just look on Glassdoor or any of these websites, you can see there's a strong demand for data scientists, but a lot of the value is from having a very strong foundation of, of both data, data governance, and in accessibility, that data has to be available to the teams to be able to use. It has to be well governed. It has to have, you know, quality checks in, in place so that it's it's you can rely on the quality of that data. So I do think that you kind of have to put the the horse in front of the car and you know invest upfront on that data capability. That said, I, I don't think that organizations should wait and you know do this massive you know, uplift to their data capability before even trying to do anything in, in data science or AI. A lot of times you kind of, you see that there is a need and you can address both in parallel. So that would be one thing that is, is certainly a key driver, which is a strong data capability and a data engineering capability. The second thing, like I said, is buy-in from the business stakeholders, you know, knowing we have this kind of influence model where we can adopt a adopt to change if we see our leaders representing that change and we feel that it makes sense for our organization. And so um, that's also needed, right? You need a message from the, the leaders of the organization that we need to invest in these capabilities. So certainly those are two things that, that come to mind. And, and how do business people, product, the leadership of uh, a company can understand the value of AI? Is there any education they need to go through? Uh, how do they realize the power that AI can bring to uh, to the business and kind of get the most out of it? Yeah, I, I think this is, this is actually really important because one, it's about like you're saying of knowing the value of it, but it's also about building trust. So I, I think executive education on the topic of AI is a very important topic. We're certainly, you know, seeing that that's kind of the first step is understanding what's out there, you know, and, and a lot of this, we, we know, right? Like you just look at the, the big tech companies and you can see these use cases. So 
think of, you know, Spotify and Netflix, you, the recommendations that you get, these are AI driven. When you're using your email with, with Gmail, you have a spam filter that is, you know, AI driven. We use Alexa or Google Home and all the speech recognition that goes into it. But just taking a step back, even outside of the big tech companies, go to the retail space like McDonald's using it for supply chain efficiency. I, I believe uh, Procter & Gamble uses it for personalized product recommendations. John Deere in the agricultural space using it for, for applications as well. So it's, it's really pervasive at this point. And I think that's, the, that's one of the, the building blocks is kind of understanding just how widespread AI is in use today and in what type of value it's creating already. And then the second step, like I said, of like building trust is, okay, then let's peel the, you know, let, let's pull the thread a little bit and understand what exactly is AI, like what is, how does it work? You know, that requires a little bit of, a little bit of study to understand how the algorithms work. What does it mean when an algorithm says that, you know, it gives you a score that, you know, uh, a stock has a score of 0.8, you know, in terms of its, its, you know, likelihood of, of being in outperforming the market, you know, Understanding the interpretability of the results and understanding of what that means uh, is kind of the second part of it, which is which is also really important for adoption. So it has to at least get to the bottom line at some point for some of the business owners, right? Mm-hmm. Like how um, is it, do you find people sometimes trip up over, okay, so it sounds nice that I can calculate these things or I can come to some kind of realization, but how do I, how do I take that to my stakeholders? Yeah. Well, this is, I I think that part, so we call this like the value at stake, right? So I I think the value be captured, it's an important part at the beginning and the end, right? So what I mean by that is when when you're working with an organization, the first thing you do is you map out the domains of the organization, you know, it could be, you know, if you think about, you know, an investment fund, for example, they'll have, you know, research where they research particular funds, they'll have a, you know, investigation phase where they're finding new investments, they'll have a portfolio management phase, they have different domains. And and if you think about investment funds, they'll have different types of investments, they'll have real estate, they'll have infrastructure, right? So it's like mapping the different domains, and then looking and seeing what are all the different use cases that we can do in those domains. And for each of those use cases, you know, you have to figure out what's the potential, like you're saying, what's the value at stake? If we were to improve our, you know, supply chain efficiency by, you know, 1%, what would that mean, like you say, for the bottom line? And not only that, that would be kind of the impact. We'd also look at what is the feasibility, like how hard of a problem is this to crack? And so that's kind of the initial initial phase of like going through top down in organization and understanding where are all the um, the possibilities. And so the, the first thing that what you do is you you try to find the places where you can unlock the most value, where you can actually quantify that that potential impact. And then you know once you have something like a model in place or you know a use case where you you have uh, something that you've delivered, at that point, it becomes important to have some type of way of quantifying the actual impact it's having. And so then you get into kind of A-B testing, different types of uh, simulation approaches, et cetera. Okay, that, that makes sense. So if a business decides to invest in AI and there's a, a good fit and they are thinking about some, there's some potential value and they start thinking about you know, investing in AI, what does that mean? What is AI transformation? What that looks like for a an average company based on your experience? Yeah. So AI transformation, I mean, the, the first thing like we, we talked about is understanding, you know, the landscape and understanding that this is a you know imperative for the organization to invest in. And then you start to think of, well, how do you sequence that? 
right? And, and I think we touched upon investing in data capabilities is kind of a, a primary thing to do, right? And so you have a lot of movement in this space of, you know, companies that are moving their data to the cloud, creating data that's more accessible. So, you know, data lake architecture, basically an infrastructure so that teams can access data and access it at, you know, reasonably frequent intervals, right? So that's kind of like the first step. And then we talked about mapping use cases. So looking through the organization, looking at each domain, what are the use cases that could be applicable and A, how feasible are they and B, how impactful could they be? And so that's kind of the second part. And then once you have that, it's really, you want to find one or two use cases that we call it a lighthouse. You know, they, they, they serve as a beacon for the rest of the organization to say, hey, you know, maybe this is, maybe there's really value here and, you know, we should be paying attention and, and, and we should bring this in our part of the organization, right? And I've, I've seen this firsthand where you work with, you know, different departments in the organization and they're very skeptical at first. And you, you work on one or two use cases and, and that one use cases that you pick, you, they see that there's a lot of value being added there. And it's like, wow, now I understand why we're, we're having, you know, why, why so much time is required. So that's kind of what I would see as the first step is identifying that, that first lighthouse, building the capabilities around engineering, on data science, on, you know, the kind of the, we call it the translator skills for the business functions so that they can kind of understand what's going on. And once you have that, I think it's, it, there's a lot of different ways that organizations can grow and, and adapt. And, you know, there, there's some where you have kind of a, a center of excellence that works with the different departments in the organizations. Some organizations feel like it's, it's better to have, you know, different you know, different analytics group for each department. It's it's really a case by case thing from there, but definitely to get started is is finding one use case that really brings a lot of value that the organization can see and get buy-in and then kind of spreading it forth and in the rest throughout the rest of the organization. Well it sounds it sounds like there's once you establish the lighthouse that the a general adoption across the country company would become feels more natural you don't have to sell it because you have a working model yeah and there's a lot of times we have to see we actually have to see something before we understand the patterns or the capabilities that it provides actually that was mostly the motivation of the first few questions that we asked is how do we get people starting to think about what could be possible within the realm of something that they haven't had the opportunity to be that closely involved with or it might be really far away from them technical wise like it just feels like a completely different yeah. world you said the word translator, and the last time we had a chat, you talked about the, um, I guess it was like a role of AI translator? Yeah, so the translator role in a, you know, in an AI project is the person who kind of plays the bridge between the, the business and the technical team. And so we just take, a, I can kind of explain why this is necessary. So we, we talked about two big things in the beginning is, you know, understanding the landscape and then working to identify use cases. That identification of use cases is really requires a lot of domain expertise. It also requires, we talked about the art of the possible and understanding from a technical point of view, what is, what is possible. You know, you don't want to end up in a was it in Silicon Valley where, you know, they're, they're asking for a new product and it's like, okay, we just think, and then it writes for you. And it's like, okay, we'll be ready in, you know, 60 years or something. So <laughs> like you need to, it, that part of the feasibility, you really need uh, some technical expertise, but you also need the domain expertise to under actually like really deeply understand the business processes. Right. So that's kind of where the translator role plays in. And, and it's the role that I, I play more often than not is working with the stakeholders to identify those use cases and then, you know, work on when you're implementing them, it, it's an iterative process, right? So 
you may have some early results. You need the business to really weigh in and understand how to interpret, how to find a way, a path forward, and then drive adoption. Um, so that's kind of how I would describe the, the translator role. So when you're in those conversations and you're talking to the business team, are you ever going in there and feel like the audience is trying to drive the solution in a way that doesn't necessarily fit what you're trying to accomplish? Like take, for instance, we are, maybe I can use artificial intelligence to solve this, uh, this pricing issue over here. And, but you're, you with the domain expertise, you're like, well, maybe that's not the right way to ask that question. What you really probably mean to ask is we need to understand a market trend within a given environment. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, you ever exactly. find like you're kind of coach, sometimes coaching the business team into how to think critically about the problems or, or the opportunities around them? It's both ways, right? Like a lot of times you will, I mean, building an AI model is a process of experimentation of of adding and removing and refining variables. And a lot of times you may get results where you're trying to, like I said, you're trying to interpret the, the results to get to that explainability. And a lot of times that requires the, the business expertise. So it may be that, you know, just getting a good result on a model is not enough because what can happen is sometimes you can have all types of either data leakage or you can have variables that are doing things that you are non-intuitive. I'll give an example, you know, working with a model where we're, you know, trying to predict how the, the stock market is going to move. It turns out that one of the variables was the year. And so because year is ever increasing variable, it's actually, it should not actually have a weight in the model but we found that it did. And this was a big flag for us. And, and this kind of a very, it sounds very simple, but in, when you have you know, hundreds of variables and, and teasing out, pressure testing the approach to make sure that it makes sense from a business domain perspective is super important. And a lot of times it requires those, the, the business perspective of, of those stakeholders. So being in this role of translator, it's not unique to AI. It's like, it's not, AI translator that it's unique. I think it's a, it's a pretty common responsibility of any leader. I'm going to be talking about in, in technology context. Mm -hmm. So engineering manager, TPM, product manager, CTO, you have to work with the business product, uh, stakeholders, external clients, and then translate those requirements into technical projects, uh, expectations, and drive this project to, to success. So I'm curious, based on your experience being in this role, what are the challenges being kind of in the middle of product stakeholders and technology? Yeah, and, and you guys have a lot of experience with this as well, right? For me, like one of the toughest things, have either of you read the, the book, The Mythical Man Month? No, nope. no, I haven't, but we will. It's, it's a very old book about, you know, software engineering teams and you know estimating work and it, it introduces a lot of counterintuitive principles that may not be evident if you don't work in the technology domain which i think points to what you're saying so for example a lot of times the rational solution for if a project is running behind is to throw more bodies at it and you know the, the author of this book, it, I think it's from like, it's, it's quite old. I think it's from like the, the late 80s. He, he's basically saying what you're doing by adding more people to the problem, you're actually slowing it down further because you're creating more, more complicated network. Plus there's the onboarding process of getting them up to speed, et cetera. And so it's things like that of the nuances of technical development that may not be obvious outside of, of, of building software and, and writing code. I, I think that's kind of one of the challenges is, is really getting that the, the buy-in for this iterative process rather than, you know, this is a fixed schedule and, you know, this is the due date for this is this, and this is what we're going to stick to. There's a danger of being on either extreme of that, right? Like, if, if you don't have the, a little bit of leeway to adapt, you're going to burn the team out, 
right? And and it's because software projects are by their nature much more harder to estimate than you know manufacturing projects, for example. On the other hand, if you take the you know other approach, which is this is software, it might be done tomorrow, it might be done in a month, who knows? And you just you know, and and some people will say that's agile, right? Uh, you know, it is not having a deadline. You know, there's also a danger of that because then the the business stakeholders are like, I can't work. This is this doesn't fit with my paradigm of the way that things work, um, and so. That's that for me has kind of been a, the thing that I've tried to learn over time is getting to estimates, but working with all the stakeholders to be flexible with them and revisiting them. And and honestly, like it even comes to the point of like, let's be ready to just walk away at any point. You know, we might be doing a use case that we had a hype. These are all experiments and they're all hypotheses. And we might have a, a hypothesis that doing this problem is is even possible, and you know, a couple two weeks in, we might discover that actually we need to revisit that assumption, and maybe we need to pivot. And so that's kind of the, I think, with analytics and AI, especially, you have that risk. A lot of times, you're doing use cases that either nobody has done, or you don't know anyone who has done them before. So there is always a risk that you need to be ready to pivot or or reassess the the priorities. So one of the outcomes or challenges I envision, um, given my experience, just in in software, is expectations. So in software, uh, you write software, you deliver it, it works. We call it a day. It's done. AI is more flexible. It's more vague, right? There's a lot of things you can do or cannot do. How do you deal with that ambiguity? Ambiguity, yeah. How do you deal with that? How do you manage expectations uh, when working with clients? And you know, like you said, you can walk away. That's one of the options. And there's a lot of experimentation going on, right? So you don't really know what you're going to get at the end. But the client, let's say, will expect, oh, this AI will do everything for me. will write the code. will make a coffee for me. And at the end, it's not. It's just a, maybe a simple suggestion engine or something like that. So how, how do you how do you deal with that? Well, yeah. if, I, if, if I could just add a, a little bit of, of uh, so Alex might roll his eyes at me on, at this one because I keep talking about uh, complex systems and complexity science and how um, we think about things. And, and Tom, you said something about Agile and how it has like this, it's, it has a sentiment of an, it's unpredictable as to when I'll ever realize the things that I'm hoping that my company eventually realizes. And if uh, I think where it comes from is our obsession with being able to develop controlled systems, systems of control where I can say, if I put this in, I will get this out every single time. And it's predictable because when somebody asks me of to produce this thing, I'll know I can insert this and I will get this outcome. And we want to treat our people that way too, because if, if you're a tech lead or a manager, and you're being asked to deliver or solve this big problem, obviously people wanna know when, because when is timely for competitive sake, for the sake of keeping the business running. There's a lot of motivation for that, but we always seem to take the things, everything, almost everything, and including AI and every other technical project we've worked on, we work on, and even Agile, because Agile is not technically a framework, it's a set of tools to build a process around. Even for, for AI, it's still, this is a common theme. How do I control this? How do I make something that's really complicated? And now, and to the point, Alex, I heard what, I was, what I'm hearing Alex say is that there are so many variables. And Tom, you're saying too, that we might not even have be working with the wrong data here. So part of the process has to be experimentation and rapidly and understanding where the failures emerge and allowing for the story to, I don't, I don't know if it's organic, what do you think, Tom? No, I, I mean, I, I think you're both kind of getting at the same point, which is like the desire to control processes from both sides, right? So from the technical team and, and from a business point of view. And I, I think, you know, like I said, I, I think it's important to have that adaptive mindset and then work with the stakeholders to 
have that at day zero. It's also important to be flexible. I do think that, um, and, and it's funny, like the what you're saying is very similar to what the, it, the, the mythical man month, the, the title comes from the fact that people think that, you know, a month worth of effort is, you know, equal to one person. And so adding more persons means you're reducing the time. It's it, in reality, it's, it's a lot more complex than that. It's the specific individuals that are there, the specific capabilities that you have um, and working together. So I, I think I mean, you, what you want to avoid is being like, hey, we're going to start this project. And, you know, six months from now, we'll, we may or may not have something interesting to show you. I think that's hard or a year from now. Right. And, and the same thing goes with like we talked about, you know, preparing the data capabilities like people want to see a return on investment somehow because that kind of fuels the enthusiasm and actually creates a lot of momentum. So I, I think what you want to do is you don't want to create the expectation that like, oh, every two weeks we're going to have uh, amazing results. But you want to have some type of cadence where, you know, every every month or two months, you're able to reach some milestones and regenerate that excitement and enthusiasm. Because what you don't want, and I think this happens in a lot of organizations, they know that data and analytics is important. They invest in hiring people and creating a team. And that team becomes fully isolated from the rest of the organization. And therefore, it fails on multiple levels, right? It fails because the people in that team are shut off from the the actual business and they're not able to learn and make anything useful. And then the rest of the business, it's, you know, they're not as it's, it's not integrated into the organization. So to get that, and, and we talk about AI transformation, that's what we're trying to get to. We're trying to get where it's not an isolated individuals that, you know, this the CEO decided that they need to invest in analytics, but it's not actually creating value. You need to generate that excitement and interval so that the people at the the leaders of the organization are really excited and they want to continue to invest and spread it through the organization. So, so that's that's kind of the challenge. So there's a there's a people aspect or a culture aspect as well that you consider when when talking to folks about what how they're adopting AI and as part of the transformation. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, especially in in larger organizations, it's this is very new, you know, like having, a, you know, an AI center of excellence or having, you know, uh, even a chief data officer or, you know, an analytics part of the organization is very new. And the organiz- these organizations are, are large and they're structured in a certain type of way. And you're essentially asking people to break out of that. And I, th- I think any type of organizational change requires a some type of shift in, in mindset or culture. And what would, so if, uh, what would a healthy s- situation kind of look like if, if I was on, or if you came into an organization, we had a st- established data team, we had some facilities, what are the, if you're the doctor coming in to kind of do a health check, what are the attributes you're looking for? Yeah. So I think you mentioned a couple. So one is the data capabilities are, are kind of primary, right? So making sure that the data of the organization is is well governed and that it is accessible is, is usually the first kind of when, um, what do you mean by accessible because i hear a lot of people say that like what is accessible data so if you think about a lot of times it depends on how you want to create your analytics environment there is a lot of benefit to having analytics in the cloud because you can scale up and down automatically, right? I mean, if I I have a large job that I need to do that requires hundreds of machines, I can just ask uh, the cloud provider to give me those machines for 10 minutes, and then I, they turn off, right? So having access to the cloud can be a key enabler in, in providing access to the data, and having the data available on some type of cloud platform is typically a means to do that. It's not advisable in all circumstances, of course, but that's 
that can be a, a good way to make sure that the parts of the organization that you know the, the the data scientists, the data engineers that need access to the data have access to it, such that it's not interrupting their critical system processes. Right. So think about a bank. Right. Like a bank has a a, a core processing system that has to run. The data scientist is not going to have access to that. Right. Because it's just too much at, at stake. Uh, and so what you do is you replicate that data in an environment where they will have access to it to have like a sandbox. Now, availability means having that set up, the, the types of data that the data scientists and engineers are going to need, and having it be updated at a frequent enough basis, right? So once you get past the experimentation phase, you want to put something into production, you know, you want, you know, if not minute by minute updates, at least day by day updates, right? And so that requires on having a whole data process set up to have that analytics environment available to be reliably available to the to the data scientists. So in this role, it sounds like communication skills is important. Having a good communication skills to be able to talk to clients or stakeholders is important and then kind of translate that into more technical terms. What about technical skills? How is that important? How much, how much technical skills do you need to have? How technical do you need to be? And how do you actually learn the, those technical skills while being in this position or keep up with the technical skills? Sure. And, and you're referring to the, the translator role, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty common, again, to uh, any leadership and in technology. If you're an engineering manager and CTO, the frequent question is, do you need to code? Do you need to stay up to date with the uh, technical trends and, and architecture? Or do you, do you delegate that completely to uh, tech leads? Yeah. So if I think about like the, the team leader or like engagement manager role, you know, call it the translator role. And you can find some articles on this at McKinsey.com. We've written about, you know, the need to have translators in AI transformations. Basically, four key components. So one is domain knowledge, understanding the business, technical fluency, which, which is, you know, what you had just mentioned, project management, and then entrepreneurship. And so the, the technical fluency is, is a key part of that. You have to be able to work with the technical team, understand you know, what are the challenges that they're facing, how to maybe balance resources that might be required, communicate, you know, the results to the stakeholders, et cetera. I, I think it can come across two ways. I've seen it two different ways. My own personal um, background is more coming from a technology contributor myself. So I, you know, having done the, you know, data engineering work myself, I, I kind of understand what goes into the, the technical team. For me, I, it's more about bridging my own skills in the project management and, and the do domain knowledge. So deeply understanding the business dynamics and, and stakeholders, but it can be the other way as well. So you'll see lots of people that have very deep domain knowledge, strong skills in project management, entrepreneurship, and they build that technical fluency over time. And, and you know, this can be through you know trainings online, just through working on these projects and getting to know data scientists and engineers and and picking up those skills and the and the fluency. So I, it can be either way, um, but definitely for myself, I come from an engineering background. So for me, it's been more of kind of developing more of the business toolkit. And is anything about you know, like having an engineering background that you think has really benefited your or propelled you into the into where you are now? Yeah, I mean, is it just knowing the code, or is it also algorithms and what you know about the technology domain? Yeah, I, it certainly helps to, like I mentioned, this kind of estimation part of it is so critical of of knowing when you can kind of reasonably expect something. And I think part of it is, yeah, the fact that I've I you know come from an engineering background, I might be able to kind of think, well, if I were doing this, how long would it take? But I think it can also come from pattern recognition as well, just kind of working in different use cases, kind of seeing the different ways that thinking, things can go and, and being able to have that pattern recognition. But yeah, for me, it, it, I do find it helpful and, and being able to, like if there's a problem 
an, an issue or blocker with the team being able to say, okay, let's, let's talk about this. Let's have a, a problem solving session for the next 45 minutes and figure out what to do. I do find it has been helpful. And I, I think a lot of times, at least with the technical teams, what can happen is sometimes the prioritization is missing, right? Like you, you, sometimes you can get hung up on, you know, one thing that, that maybe is not necessary in the, the short term, but needs to be addressed longer term. And it's just a matter of helping sequence the different tasks to do. I wanted to talk about maybe some of the results from, from projects you might've been on. And there's kind of two angles that, I, that uh, at least I was curious about. Um, but uh, sometimes we start working on something and a new opportunity or result emerged that was unexpected. And sometimes it's great. Like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. This is even better than I thought. Has there been a time where that's happened while working on something like this? Every day. Do you have an example maybe that you can share? Yeah. Or Yeah, I, I mean, this happens so frequently. And, and it, of course, it's always a pleasant surprise when it's, the, when it's the opposite. Like, I actually have had this happen where we thought that it would be very hard to do a certain use case. And in fact, you know, um, you know, some of the, the client stakeholders were, were very skeptical, but we kind of wanted to push forward and, you know, try something, you know, very ambitious. And it turned out that this one use case, we had done two use cases prior to this was actually easier and we got better results. And it was just kind of this like, wait a second, that was not what we expected at all. That's the, that's the, that's when it works out in, uh, when it, when it works out good. But of course there, like I mentioned, I mean, very often you may have the data, data scientists will work on a model. You achieve some result that looks really good. And, you know, it could be that there's a variable in there that should, should not be there. And therefore you have to throw it away and start from scratch. That, that does happen fairly frequently, or it may be an issue with the data. If, if the way that the, you know, a big thing in building these models is making sure that there's no forward looking information that the model is trained on. And so when you're, you know, doing different types of model architectures, it can happen that, you know, data that shouldn't be part of the training set somehow is, is, is in there, right? It is lots of ways that this can happen. And so that that's always a concern. Sometimes that might happen. It really requires like a lot of due diligence and looking into the model methodology and everything and, and verifying. It that doesn't mean that the the project itself is is a wash. I, I, it's just a matter of regathering and figuring out, okay, how can you address and go on from there? I, I have never been part of a project where we 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 just decided to not do it because it was not technically possible, but that does sometimes happen. Sometimes, you know, and, and we call this like the intelligence phase where we're trying to understand is something feasible or not. And um, it hasn't happened to me, but that can happen where you know that there's value there. You're not sure how feasible. And so you just invest a couple of weeks to kind of tease out if something is. And sometimes you walk away and say, we don't think it is. So that that hasn't happened to me personally, but it it certainly can. Okay. So with the uh, with the AI being this uh, experimentation, being a flexible project, how do you think about success? How do you measure? What metrics do you use to understand? Looking back, understand how effective with what was this project or experiment? Should you move forward? Should should you change the direction and strategy? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I think as a short answer, there's not one metric, or at least there's not one value that you can say that uh, a model is good. It really is use case specific. And, and just give an example, like, you know, for there's so many different examples, like for fraud detection, for example, like you would want a model or, or some other use cases, you would want a model that's highly, highly accurate. And so, you know, you, you'd be expecting, you know, 90% or higher. But in finance, for example, the, the, the accuracy level is not that high at all, especially when you look at the, the stock market, because there's so much noise and variability, 
if you get you know 60 to 70 percent it, it's actually considered amazing so what is considered one you know very high metric in one use case might not be would be unachievable in another so that kind of where you get into the domain the, the blending of data science and domain understanding like what is what does good look like for this domain and this particular use case but the other way I would think about it is there are technical metrics and then there are business metrics. So, you know, in terms of technical metrics, you'll hear things like the area under the curve. It's called a rock AOC, which which looks at how well the model is, how accurate the model is performing. You'll see things like the, the, the error rates of the model um, and there are different ways of capturing that. These are all kind of... Uh, you know, the technical metrics. Another one that's used is something called the confusion matrix. It is a way of kind of quantifying where the model gets confused and mislabels things as either positive or negative. And, and so there, all there's got to be, so there's got to be some feedback loop built in, right, to, to measure that. Absolutely. And in every successive model you built, you're going to be comparing, you know, comparing those metrics to previous models. But there's also the business metric that you want to capture as well. And, and that would be something like if this model, uh, you know, for a portfolio, for example, investment portfolio, if we had, if the model was compared to the current investment approach, how many percentage points better would it be? Or if you run it through a, a simulation, how much better would it be? Um, that could be one, um, you know, so the thing is, if you go to a business stakeholder and say, oh, our rock AUC improved by 0.02% and you've got a big smile on your face and like, well, so what? I mean, what does that even mean? So at the end of the day, like the technical team, I mean, you need to keep track of those metrics and they are important, but you also need to trans, you know, again, translate them into a, a business metric that's important to the, to the business. Any tools to use to measure business? metrics or monitor them constantly? So there are a couple tools out there. So this would be considered like performance tracking tools. There is a tool called MLflow, which is open source, which is which is used pretty widely. Internally, we have a tool called Performance AI that, that we use as well for this. It is a, a key part of, you know, going from that experimentation phase to actually, you know, call it productionizing these use cases, putting them into production, being able to monitor them over time and through each experiment is, is really important. So I could also be a new business, someone really small. I don't really have a lot of data yet, but I want to learn something. Is there really a fit for transformation there? Or is there like a general set of tools maybe that someone could use to use data that's just broadly made available, for instance, like if I wanted to learn something that's available on Facebook's graph or something on Twitter, is there something for people there that they could explore? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a, a very fast growing space of how do you create tool, tools to kind of enable people to use machine learning and AI easier? And you see the cloud providers are really doubling down on this. So, you know, whether it's Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure or Amazon Web Services, uh, you'll see services where it's like AI or machine learning as a service. Um, this is certainly a, a field that's, that's growing and, and can be used, but there's also a, a big open source community as well. So, I mean, all of the, the AI algorithms, they, they are generally in open source libraries. Um, whether it's like TensorFlow or PyTorch, et cetera. You know, it's a very active community. I would say for kind of understanding, there's some very good courses by Andrew Ng. I'm a big fan of, of Andrew Ng on, on Coursera. He was actually the, the co-founder of Coursera, um, professor out of Stanford University. And his course is actually what got me into, into AI. He, he goes over the, the basic concepts. He has tutorials in Python, and that's kind of a great start. And, and there are lots of, uh, I think Kaggle is another website where they have kind of AI competitions where you can see other people's approaches, et cetera. 
So there's a lot of stuff online for kind of ramping up and, and self-learning in, in the space, as well as I mentioned, different tools that kind of are trying to make it easier for people to adopt AI as well. Yeah, I've tried a couple of tools on and GCP uh, and Azure. Not that easy to use. Uh, they make it definitely, they make it easier, uh, but it's still, you have to know your stuff. You have to do some preparation, some learning to know exactly what you're doing. They give you those tools, but it's uh, it's still uh, a bit confusing for technical, even for technical person. So uh, yeah, it's good to know there's some some courses. Any specific course you would you would recommend for let's say technical person who knows uh, some Java, who knows some uh, uh, JavaScript, C plus plus, just g general languages to uh, to get started on that path. Other than these uh, Coursera, uh, any like specific thing that they should understand first before getting into all these uh, all the tools that GCP and Azure provides. Yeah, I I mean, I'll just kind of re-emphasize like I'm a couple different um, courses available. Uh, I'm not being paid to mention this, by the way. Um, so I, I think the first one is like Introduction to Machine Learning. That's an excellent one. And then he has a whole series called Deep Learning AI and goes into the different types of machine learning algorithms, you know, one by one and actually has real examples. Like, for example using an algorithm to detect handwritten numbers is, is a common one or like classify cats versus not cats, right? Stuff like this where you get to do it hands-on is, is, is really helpful. I, I don't have a lot much more to offer other than that. Like that's kind of been my primary resource for a lot of this. And then, and then you get into kind of textbooks and, and some of the research as well, which is right. it's a lot harder depending how deep you want to go into that path, right? You can get into algorithms and statistics and all the mm -hmm. science that powers underneath the, uh, the facade of AI and all the fancy stuff. There's actually a science and it's not, it's not a new science, right? Statistics uh, existed before computers existed. Exactly. Uh, okay. So you went through this journey, you went from uh, being in technology, attending the meetups. So you went through all of, all of these kind of steps and now you're here, you're, uh, uh, you're doing AI transformation work. Is there anything based on your experience, is there anything you wish existed or maybe it exists that makes your life easier that maybe people don't know, or maybe it doesn't exist and, and somebody knows and then they can reach out to you and recommend? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess one thing I wish for, you guys might feel similarly, but technology is just like an ocean, right? And so it's impossible to be deep in everything. And so I think the real challenge as a learner is, is knowing where to go deep. And I, I think I've been, I've had good guidance and, and mentorship for that. But that's, I think that's kind of the critical thing that each learner has to kind of figure out is, you can't learn all the things, right? I mean, this is, you know, whether it's just engineering or data science or whatever, it's just a growing field. And there's more, there's more things that can possibly be learned. So I, I think it's how do you get the right set of mentors or guidance to know where to go deep and how to do it? So I, I feel like I did have some of that but that's kind of i think that's the key thing is sometimes you may make a bet on a technology and learn it but maybe it's not useful right maybe maybe it doesn't get used or you know really i mean this this happened when i was in boot camp i feel like i got lucky i was learning javascript and i think at the time angular was very much more uh, of a JavaScript framework that was used. All the jobs were in Angular. And I, I had, you know, done some research and ex experimentation. I was like, you know, what? I, I tried React. It was newer, but I felt like there was something there. And I made my own personal bet. And it actually paid off really well at the time. And I, I, I think the same is true for any technologies. You have to make bets. I mean, you're you're a venture capitalist of your own career. And, uh, and so knowing, you know, what libraries, what, um, in, even within AI and machine learning, there are different topics. And 
my my brother, for example, he studied AI recently, and you have to pick a focus. You, AI is not just one thing. It's there's uh, computer vision, there's you know robotics, there's you know uh, natural language processing. You can't be um, you can't be deep in all of these things. So I, that's that's kind of the one thing that I think is critical for any learner is like taking that ownership and making a calculated bet on where your passion and what you think the, you know, the, the industry is going towards. Um, the, the other thing I would say is like, I going through a, a coding bootcamp was great. I felt like I got good technical skills that helped me, but honestly, it's been the, 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 the real learning for me has been, you know, learning how to, how to lead a team, uh, leadership, project management, and honestly, strategy. I say this because I, you know, I, I think when we first met, I was I was a software engineer, and I I left that I left my first software engineering job to co-found a startup, and I was the the CTO of the startup for about a year and a half, and ultimately, I you know, it did not work out, which is uh, you know why it's it's no longer. But one of the key learnings for me from that was that we didn't fail because of technology. Like that was that was my domain. Like that was my responsibility, you know, to make sure that our tech was good. It was, you know, scalable, all this kind of stuff. That's not the reason that the business didn't succeed because of our strategy. And uh, and that's the one thing that I think in addition to building the technical skills, it's important to always continue to upskill as well, like personal leadership, understanding of strategy and, um, you know, um, project management, all that kind of stuff. So, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a continual process and there's always more to learn, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like sometimes the, our roles in the teams push us into these areas and stretch us in those ways where we have to start thinking about what's happening around about the world around us and how our work immediately fits into that story and what's the future of our work because even the project or the things that we're doing now if they're if the wind blows just the right way now becomes irrelevant and then 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 where are we yeah it's, it's easy to go with the flow it's like oh this is a new hot thing let me jump on this and then jump on that and there's no focus and uh five years later you didn't really master anything you don't really know anything really well and yeah so I, I it's a good advice to focus pick your pick your industry pick something that you want to focus and go deep and learn something and also at the same time be uh be flexible and broad yeah. like you said project management mm -hmm. Uh, leadership, right? Not just technology, because technology is just a means to an end. It doesn't solve the business. Business is business, right? And most companies fail for that reason. Business plan is not, uh, it, it was not perfect. Mm. Or they didn't talk to their customer. Sure. Or they hoped to be their customer. Yeah. So Tom, thanks so much for hanging out with us. As we're closing here, you mentioned there's some pretty cool projects going on in, in your domain. So you want to spend a couple minutes kind of tell us what you have going on now and what you'd like people to know about? Yeah. So, I, you know, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm part of quantum black. Uh, you know, we do AI advanced analytics across different industries. Like I said, it's very impactful transformational work. We are hiring. So I would encourage people to check out our, our careers page, quantumblack.com forward slash careers. And then, you know, we're, we also have an aspect of quantum black, that, that is building, you know, reusable tools for these transformations. And one in particular, we open sourced about a year ago. It's called Kedro, K-E-D-R-O. And, uh, you know, I would encourage people that are in this space and interested to check it out. I've given a couple talks about it on, in different data science conferences. I think one of them is available on, on YouTube. Um, and, and yeah, we, you know, it's essentially a tool that to really help organize the, the development process of, of AI solution. So from the data engineering aspect and the data science aspect, it's a, you know, it creates a kind of initial boilerplate to get you started, but it has a whole bunch of very cool tools that 
that just simplify the, the process of bringing in new data, joining it, and running a pipeline. Um, so I encourage people to check that out. It's on GitHub. Um, there's also a, a read the docs page um, that you can access from the GitHub site that you guys can link to. And um, it, you know, in, in any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to. And how uh, how should folks reach out to you? Like LinkedIn or email or? Uh, LinkedIn is, is good, yeah. All right, awesome. Well, Tom, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. Definitely a pleasure having you and awesome seeing you again. Everyone looks healthy, which is thumbs up here. Yeah. So kudos for that. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for tuning into the Pragmatic Lead Podcast. If you found this conversation interesting or helpful, we would appreciate your feedback. If you want even more content like what you just heard, check out pragmaticlead.com. If you have a story to tell, send an email to pragmaticlead at gmail.com and someone will be in touch. Thanks again.